بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته In August of 1798, Napoleon Bonaparte, then an upstart general in the French military, uh, at the time not somebody who was very well known, was in the ancient city of Qahira, Cairo. And amazingly, he was getting ready, he was dressing up with the help of a senior sheikh of Al-Azhar by the name of Sheikh Al-Bakri. And he was wearing the garment of the ulama. In fact, he even donned a, a, a turban. And with the help of the sheikh, he then made his way to a very, uh, very well-attended procession on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, in the year 1213 uh, after the Hijrah. And of course, this was a Mawlid celebration that Napoleon himself had sponsored with his own money. And at the end of the ceremonies, while he was sitting with the Azhari Sheikh and with hundreds of people in the audience, according to one uh, later report, he declared that he was a defender of the faith, and he praised the Prophet ﷺ, and he apparently declared the Shahada and formally embraced Islam. The crowd went wild with shouts of joy and takbir, and this Grand Sheikh of Al-Azhar gave him the title as Sultan Al-Kabir, and the people bestowed upon him the name Ali. So how exactly did a Corsican-born, short-statured French general by the name of Napoleon become a Sultan al-Kabir Ali Bonaparte? And how would this particular incident change the entire course of history? Well, that is what today's library chat, inshallah ta'ala, will introduce you to. Because this incident, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt, is one of the most significant episodes in our entire 14 and a half centuries of Islamic history. And it is the one incident that pushes the Muslim world into modernity and onto the global scene. And please stick with me because there are some aspects of this Napoleonic story that are exaggerations and we will get to that. By the way, if you're wondering why I'm uh, dressed like this or the camera angles or whatnot, uh, so we are just in the middle of uh, the worst uh, winter Arctic storm that Texas has ever faced. We've just gone through three three days of not having electricity or uh, intermittent uh, bouts of electricity. So alhamdulillah, electricity is up and running, or at least I hope it is, inshallah ta'ala, but it is still very, very cold. So I'm dressed up uh, uh, like this. Uh, as well, by the way, I purchased uh, a new camera and lens and lighting. And so uh, please tell me, and Jazakallah khair to the brothers who uh, online helped me set this up. Uh, this is all being set up by myself, but the brothers, uh, so you know who you are. You helped me set it up online. So any uh, comments or any feedback, please leave them, uh, inshallah ta'ala, uh, at the bottom. Now let's get back to our story. And let's begin with the French Revolution of 1789. And again, by the way, this entire you know uh, uh, library chat uh, it's really, it's a very condensed, uh, very condensed uh, uh, chat that really could be discussed in many different episodes. It's very multifaceted. But the point is that, uh, again, the purpose is just to introduce you. It's a very basic overview. It's a bird's eye view of uh, this very interesting episode of Napoleon's invasion of Egypt. Now, let's begin with 1789 and the famous French Revolution. Of course, the French Revolution changes the course of history. It's the first time that uh, the nation 
nation state or the will of the French people basically supersedes that of a royal family. So now we're getting the beginnings of the modern uh, world, both in America and in France, where the people are sovereign and not the king. And uh, within a decade of the establishment of the French Republic, uh, in May 1798, the French parliament authorizes a army invasion of Egypt. More than 20,000 troops uh, are authorized to uh, take their naval forces. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte is put in charge of this. However, the troops are not told where they're going. They're simply told it's a surprise uh, mission. And in the spirit of the Enlightenment, very, very interestingly, along with 20,000 people to kill and rape and plunder, 150 scientists are sent with equipment and with, you know, uh, anthropologists, historians, uh, uh, linguists. They're sent uh, to theologians as well to chronicle and uh, to record and to study uh, the peoples and the civilizations of uh, Egypt. So... Why is France wanting to invade Egypt in 1798? And realize that 1798, you know, there is, uh, there is no direct colonization yet of the Muslim world. True, England has its, its, its hands very deep inside India. But the British Raj has yet to be established, right? You still have the East Indian Trading Company. So they're, they're trading, they have an alliance, and they have a, 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 an understanding with the Mughal Emperor. So why are the French interested in invading Egypt? Well, there are a number of motivations. First and foremost, primarily uh, to have the upper hand over the British and to threaten the British Empire in India. Uh, they felt that by invading Egypt, they might be able to block uh, British trade route, uh, routes to India. Also, uh, there are uh, there are theories that because of the, uh, the 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 slave trade being abolished and banned, uh, French the French decided to replace the income from slave trades via colonization. Also, one of the explicit goals of France was to weaken the Ottoman Empire. Bonaparte mentions this explicitly, uh, that uh, France wanted a share of the pie, and of course, uh, Egypt is under Ottoman rule. Uh, we're going to get there. Of course, the Mamluks were in charge, the governors, but obviously, uh, indirectly, uh, it was under Ottoman rule. As well, uh, there was a personal motivation for Napoleon as well. He felt that this was established his own credentials. Napoleon was definitely very, very very ambitious. He was aiming to be a very significant player in global history, and he felt that this expedition would jumpstart uh, uh, that route, which of course, by the way, it did. There's also theories that uh, the French establishment was getting irritated of Napoleon, and there was this notion of sending him on a wild goose chase as well, which is, you know, it has its pros and cons, that theory, because you wouldn't send 20,000 troops on a wild goose chase. But there are uh, theories that some of Napoleon's, you know, uh, enemies or whatnot, they wanted to just send him away uh, for the time being. They didn't realize that uh, in returning, he would actually be even more powerful than when they uh, sent him away. And of course, there was also the romantic understanding of Egypt and the Pharaonic lands and Moses and the Israel. Israelites. So Egypt has captured the imagination of uh, peoples for time immemorial. Now, uh, France, of course, was well aware that Egypt was under the rule of the Mamluks. Now, the Mamluks were a, a as famously known, the slave dynasty, right? The Mamluks, of course, had been there since the time of Salah al al-Ayyubi, since the time of the Ayyubids, right? So we're literally talking about, you know, more than five, six hundred years. And uh, the Mamluks had defeated uh, the uh, the Mongols. Uh, the Mamluks had defeated uh, so many different enemies that were attacking uh, the, the lands. And of course, the Mamluks ethnically, originally, they were primarily from the, the region known as 
Circassia, uh, which is basically a bordering uh, Russia. And also there were elements of the Turkish elite as well. And the Mamluks were the actual governors and rulers of, of Egypt, but they were paying their tithes or their taxes to the Ottomans. And there was a love-hate relationship. There was an awkward relationship between the Mamluks of Egypt and between the Ottomans based in Istanbul. And of course, the, the, the Mamluk vassal state uh, wanted its own independence. At times, they didn't pay the taxes. At times, they did. And so you have the local Mamluk uh, ruling elite, which are, who are, generally speaking, you know, obviously they're intermingling with the people, but they're still a different category, they're a different class. And then you have the actual Ottomans, the Turks, and you have the Turkish emissaries, you have the actual Turks living uh, in Egypt as well. And then, of course, you have the local Egyptian population with groups of ulama, the elites, the merchants, the nobility, the peasants, all different classes of society. That's in a nutshell, so we understand what is going on. Do keep in mind as well, by the way, that Egypt at this point in time was one of the most neglected of all of the Ottoman provinces. And so it had you couldn't compare uh, Egypt to any of the mainstream Ottoman lands. In fact, um, we have eyewitness accounts of Napoleon's uh, soldiers and generals uh, when they were uh, when they were chronicling their their uh, journey into Egypt and their interactions with the people that they are appalled at the poverty uh, of the people of Egypt. Uh, overall, the extremely emaciated bodies, uh, the nakedness of even adult women and men, uh, especially amongst the peasant class, there was nothing to cover uh, to cover their 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 uh, themselves except maybe the 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 aura. People, you know, um, very hungry, dying of starvation. Um, one chronicler says there were more dogs in the city of Cairo than people. Obviously, that's an exaggeration. Uh, but the point being that realize that Egypt was not uh, the way we understand it in terms of being uh, one of the capitals of Arabic and Muslim uh, culture. It's going to change, and Napoleon's invasion is the beginning of that uh, change. Now, what are the sources of uh, our talk uh, or about uh, this 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 era uh, well there's lots of, of information uh, that's available Napoleon's diaries and Napoleon's observations are well known and published uh, about his whole life of course he wrote about his own life um, uh, in a lot of detail we also have many of the French uh, elite and the noblemen uh, writing and we have their 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 writings preserved and translated uh, we also have perhaps the last of the great Muslim historians uh, Abdurrahman al Barti, uh, who uh, was an eyewitness. He was actually alive uh, during the invasion and he uh, was an eyewitness to some of these key uh, incidents. And of course, the uh, invasion has been chronicled by many different historians. I personally would like to recommend uh, two books to all of you uh, that are, I think are very useful introductory books, uh, even though, of course, much has been written. The first of these is this one here. It is called um, Napoleon's Egypt. It is written by uh, Juan Cole, uh, Napoleon's Egypt Invading the Middle East. This is probably one of the better and the more easier books to understand. It's a very nice introduction. And then the second is... Um, a translation of Al-Jabarti. This is a little bit more difficult to, to read uh, because Al-Jabarti has a way of, just like the ancient historians, you know, how they used to um, how they used to uh, write with lots of details. But Al-Jabarti's chronicles uh, have been translated and you can find this um, online, both of these books. There's, of course, many other books as well. You can just do a Google search and you find like tons of articles and, and, uh, and uh, many other books written about Napoleon's invasion of Egypt and the repercussions of that. Now, again, the goal of our library chat is literally a bird's eye view. And more important than the incidents are what we can derive um, from them. Now, to briefly summarize the, uh, the, the, the debacle of the invasion, when the French force, uh, forces sailed, 
the British, with their spies and their networks, were fully aware of what's going on. And so the British knew that the French were going to invade Egypt, but they didn't know where they would land, and they didn't know the exact dates. There are no spy satellites. It's 1798. And so the British and the French, of course, are the rivals. The British send a, a, an envoy uh, to the Mamluks, and the British uh, literally land in Egypt, get an a, a appointment with the Mamluk emissary of, of um, Alexandria, which is the port city, and they tell him, hey, the French are going to invade. Now, the Mamluks are completely oblivious, and they thought that the British are just, you know, going crazy, have no clue what's going on, and the Mamluks told them to get lost, and they did not take that threat seriously. And therefore, on the 1st of July, 1798, the 1st of July, 1798, is interesting, by the way, that America has been founded, we have the founding fathers going on over here. In 1798, the Najdis are, you know, active in Arabia, they're attacking Mecca, trying to get to, to conquer Mecca, and in 1798, Napoleon is in Egypt. So really interesting global affairs, you know, um, going on uh, simultaneously. Uh, in 1798, the 1st of July, Napoleon's forces land outside the ancient and the historic city of Alexandria, one of the most historic cities of the world. And Alexandria was taken by a complete surprise. To, to say that, you know, the Mamluks were not expecting an invasion is an understatement. It's literally Napoleon, as if out of nowhere, brings his 20,000 troops, and within a few hours, uh, he conquers the entire city. There was a feeble attempt by the local, you know, the Mamluk um, uh, guards, the Mamluk, uh, you know, ar ar army of Alexandria. But you see, what we're going to see throughout this entire invasion is the disparity of civilizations, is the technological gap that existed between the French and between the Mamluks. You literally had, no exaggeration, on the one side, uh, you had uh, rifles and you had cannons and you had weaponry, and on the other side, you had skimtars you had knives and swords and yes you did have some you know old you know uh guns i mean you know those those uh, those those long guns that are uh 1700s uh, early 1700s napoleons of course is we're talking about rifles uh the mamluks generally speaking did not have the weaponry not every one of their soldiers sorry not every soldier was armed with an actual firearm many of their soldiers were still using uh the weapons of the past so you had the mamluks fighting uh uh, the, the, the French, you know, in their regalia uh, with their weaponry. How, how do you think that battle is going to, to, to last? So literally within uh, a few hours, a foreign nation, the French, they come in, they literally just waltz in and they attack one of the most ancient and magnificent cities in the world and power is transferred from the Mamluks to the French. Uh, Bonaparte, by the way, was very clear uh, to his troops. He was he wanted to make sure that the people uh, were not mistreated to the best uh, uh, way possible. He actually made an announcement among his troops and he proclaimed, and we have these announcements recorded, uh, meaning written down, he proclaimed, and I quote, the people uh, that we're going to are the Mohammedans. Their first article of faith is there is no God but God, and Mohammed is his prophet. Uh, do not contradict them. Show respect for their muftis and their imams. Show, um, uh, show respect for their ceremonies uh, prescribed by the Quran, for, uh, and show respect for their mosques, etc., etc. So he wanted to make sure that the uh, that his 
troops uh, did not uh, overtly act sacrilegious. And uh, do remember that Napoleon and his army are now there the embodiment of the Enlightenment era. Generally speaking, you can call this like the first secular army. Napoleon's invasion was the most significant interaction with Europe since the Crusades. Remember this point, right? So since the Crusades, the Muslim world has not interacted with Europe uh, in a military uh, manner uh, to the extent that it is now going to, uh, to, to undertake. And Napoleon is not coming as a Christian. He's not coming as a Catholic. Napoleon is coming very much as a secular person where religion is something private. Religion, generally speaking, his troops are not overtly uh, religious. And they had abandoned uh, many of of them, most of them have abandoned Catholicism. Napoleon in particular was very much a deist. He believed in a God, but not necessarily the God of uh, Christianity. And Napoleon uh, issued a proclamation that all weapons should be handed over, and if they are, then everybody would be safe. Uh, he told the people of Alexandria that imams and scholars are not going to be harmed. Uh, they should continue their prayers uninterrupted, the five daily salawat. And he said that he does not want to interfere in the lives of the Arabs, but they cannot side with the Mamluks or the Ottomans. And he wanted to eliminate the Turkish rule and eliminate the, the, the Mamluk uh, um, uh, ruling over the Egyptians. And Napoleon had brought with him from France an uh, Arabic-based printing press, a printing press with Arabic uh, uh, typesetting. And he used that printing press to start printing propaganda in his favor and distributing it to the townsfolk and the Egyptians. Now, uh, some of you might have listened to my other talk that I gave many years ago about the printing press. Do realize the Muslim world did not have a functional printing press up until this point in time. And it is truly surreal to point out that the first Arabic printing press that was used in the Muslim world was manufactured in Europe literally brought on the ships of Napoleon by an invading army and used for political propaganda. The symbolism of all of this is just too profound. You know, the, the metaphors that one can, one can extract from this one incident are very, very deep. So think about that, right? The first printing press that was used on Arabian soil, on Arab soil in Muslim lands, was manufactured in Europe. And it was literally brought by an invading army and thrust on the people and then used for the first thing printed was political propaganda. And we still have uh, the, the, the initial you know, uh, printing of the, the proclamation. I think I can put on the, the screen over here. And uh, the translation reads, I mean, obviously it's much longer than this, but what, what one paragraph reads that it begins in the name of God, the, ever, the Rahman, the Rahim, there is no God but Allah, he has no son, and he shares his power with no one. Uh, the commander-in-chief of the French armies, Napoleon, General Napoleon Bonaparte, says to the people of Egypt, for too long this bunch of slaves brought in Georgia and the Caucasus, meaning the Mamluks, has tyrannized the most beautiful country in the world. In the eyes of God, all men are equal. So what entitles the Mamluks to all that makes life comfortable and pleasant? Who owns all of the great estates? The Mamluks. Who have the loveliest slaves? The Mamluks. Who have the most splendid horses and the finest houses? The Mamluks. If Egypt truly and rightfully belongs to them, let them produce the deeds by which God gave it to them. Once you had great cities, large canals, and prosperous trade. What has destroyed all of this, if not the greed, iniquity, and tyranny of the Mamluks? End quote, and it goes 
on and on. So we find over here that Napoleon is appealing to their love of this dunya, telling them that all of the problems of the world are because of the Mamluks. And again, I'm not defending the Mamluks. I mean, definitely a lot can be said for any uh, uh, any government and any leadership, uh, especially uh, the Mamluks of the time. And even the Ottomans, again, all of this is uh, part of history that we need to see. So Napoleon is basically using the standard age-old con con um, uh, tactic of divide and conquer. Exacerbate ethnic tensions, you know, bring in enticement of this world, bring in racism. You know, those are the Mamluks, the Circassians, the Georgian slaves. Who are they uh, to rule? over you. And then of course Napoleon is appealing to Islamic sentiment in the name of God, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, etc, etc. And um, uh, realize that you, you know, realize that you know the the, the notion of uh, European invasions was unknown up until this point in time. And of course, the Egyptians had heard of the French, but they didn't understand Napoleon's reasons for invasion. They didn't understand why this group would be coming in, and they most definitely did not understand the 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 Enlightenment era, uh, you know, uh, zeitgeist of the time, if you like, you know, the theology and the politics of. Uh, Napoleon. So Napoleon is trying his best to convey that I'm not a Catholic. I'm actually uh, pro-Islam. I'm more closer to Islam than I am to uh, Catholicism. And maybe in some ways, in some ways, you know, uh, one could see where he is coming from. Uh, it's interesting that our guy, uh, Abdurrahman al-Jabarti, you know, the famous chronicler, uh, he, he tries to explain to his Egyptian readers uh, who these who these um, invaders are because again they've never seen uh, you know the, these types of people and so Al Jabarti writes that they aren't quite Christian but they're most certainly not Muslim and he mentions that uh, they lack all types of haya and all types of common sense. Uh, they, their women don't veil. Uh, they fornicate at will. He says. Uh, he says the men uh, defecate. Anywhere they want, they'll just uh, they'll just uh, urinate in the streets or defecate anywhere. And then he says, and when they're done, they don't even wipe themselves. This is Al Jabarti writing uh, about this. And then uh, he also quotes Napoleon's um, uh, proclamation, and he uh, quotes it bit by bit, and he does a bit of a, a sharh of it, mocking it. It's a very ingenious way of mocking it, pointing it's like a line by line commentary, you know, pointing out you know errors or maybe he meant this or it's very worthy of reading if you understand e Egyptian uh, humor. But that's the original um, um, Arabic. And uh, it's interesting to note, by the way, that, you know, as Al-Jabarti is describing his antagonism towards the French and they're backward and they smell and they don't dress properly and, and they, 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 they defecate in this manner and their women are lacking haya. You know, when you look at the French descriptions of the Egyptians, subhanAllah, you find similar types of sentiments, right? Uh, backwardness and hatred and the same notions of women lacking hayat. It's really interesting. Both civilizations are accusing the other of their women lacking uh, hayat. And it's just a very anthropological you know, uh, point here that uh, a lot of times one reads in one's own weaknesses into the other. This is a well-known um, uh, well issue in anthropology. Anyway, back to our story. Of course, uh, we, we talked about Napoleon's capture of Alexandria, but Alexandria was a small port city. You really need to capture Qahira, Cairo. And once you've done that, then of course, you know, the rest of the country will open up for you. And so Napoleon realized that, of course, he has to march on to Cairo. And the locals of Alexandria had already alerted uh, 
the people of Cairo that uh, uh, Napoleon is invading. And so for the next few days or weeks, Cairo comes under a panic mode. Uh, the Mamluk base is, of course, in Cairo. That's where the majority of the army is. And so for the next, you know, 10-15 days, uh, Dua al-Qunut was done, you know, Salah special prayers were done. All of the prayers had constant salawat of the Prophet Adhan. Uh, Al-Azhar University started having Qunut every single day. All of the madrasas, the children's schools and whatnot, they began having, you know, uh, special prayers. Uh, and uh, the, the city became very much on red alert. So unlike Alexandria, Cairo was prepared. And Cairo knew there was going to be a showdown. Now the French left Alexandria. Uh, well, there was a small contingent left. So the bulk of the French troops, they started marching on towards uh, Cairo. And of course, there is no way to march other than on foot, okay? Napoleon came on ships. And now, from Alexandria, they have to march on foot in the month of July, okay? Think about that. And the French were wearing their ridiculous costumes head to toe. This is not the era of modern warfare where people wear camouflage and they know what to expect. This is 1798 here. And the French have their plumes and everything, you know, top to bottom. And of course, you know, leave it to uh, invading armies to not really, especially the French, to not really think about the logistical details. Napoleon had forgotten to give his troops adequate water canisters as they marched in the heat of the summer of July in the deserts of Egypt, you know, from Alexandria to Cairo. And they started marching and they don't have adequate water canisters. What do you think is going to happen when the temperatures reach literally in the 120s, 130s uh, Celsius? What is going to happen? Behold, tens and thousands of troops are marching and water, of course, runs out. People started going mad. Many people died. Many of them actually committed suicide. Every time they came across a village, uh, by the time the end troops came, the water had already been finished from the entire uh, village. Uh, stampedes were caused at wells as they're marching through by the French soldiers killing one another for water. Uh, and by the time they get to, uh, by the way, of course, uh, mirages as well. For the first time, uh, the French soldiers uh, see mirages everywhere and they think they're going mad. They start running. They think they see water. And of course, it turns out to be uh, a mirage. So because of that, a number of French soldiers even committed suicide. They thought they're going crazy when they see water and there's no water. Eventually, they reached the River Nile and the entire army, it is said, just went berserk and crazy, rushed into the water uh, like madmen. And hey, who wouldn't do that? It started drinking and gulping and whatnot. And of course, you're not supposed to drink water to your fill after you've been dehydrated for a week or two. It took them more than two weeks, okay, to march. More than two weeks from Alexandria to, to Cairo. Uh, many of them died. Um, and by the time they got there, uh, they're just gulping up this water, which of course is going to make them sick, dysentery and whatnot. In any case, after a few days of recovery, on the 21st of July, 1798, this is the key battle. And it's called the Battle of the Pyramids that took place because obviously the famous pyramids of Giza were in the background. The famous pyramids that we've all visited or those that have been to Cairo visited. So the, the French soldiers could see the tips, not the full. Because remember, the Muslim civilizations by and large had ignored uh, the pharaonic. They thought them to be, why, why would anybody be interested in those you know, pharaonic monuments? So uh, the three pyramids of Giza uh, and even the Sphinx, was most of them were covered up with sand. Nobody would really care about them. You could see the tips of the pyramids. And so you could see the tips of the pyramids uh, with Napoleon on one side with his roughly 20,000 minus Allah knows how many hundreds or thousands died on the one side and uh, you have on the other side the Mamluk army here okay and this is not a few thousand like uh, Alexandria no you have 
thousands and thousands. We don't, I don't know exactly how many. We don't know exactly how many, but um, probably, probably to the tune of more than 10,000 Mamluk soldiers uh, were in uh, Cairo at the time. Still, though, you're talking about a trained French battalion. Despite the fact that they're tired, uh, disheveled, thirsty, uh, many of them are sick. Still, though, they have weapons and they have rifles and they have cannons. Now, the, the, the Mamluks did have a very, very rudimentary cannon system, but nothing like the, 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 the French, right? Uh, and uh, most of the Mamluk army didn't have, as we said, weapons. They had uh, ancient muskets going back to the 16th century or whatnot. You can't compare them to the long-distance rifles uh, of, of the French. And there are vivid descriptions, multiple eyewitnesses of this particular uh, battle, the Battle of the Pyramids, where uh, the Mamluks charged en masse. Thousands and thousands of people were charging on their horses. And Napoleon uh, had his troops lined up. And there's actually, you know, modern uh, movies that have been done by the French and others to, to, to depict this battle. You can see this online. And Napoleon used the standard tactic. Again, we've seen this in the movies all the time. But the Mamluks hadn't seen the movies. The Mamluks didn't know what to do, right? And so the Mamluks are literally charging, you know, uh, with takbirs and whatnot. And Napoleon tells his army, steady, 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 don't fire, don't, don't, don't do anything until finally when they're in firing and visual distance, everybody fires simultaneously. The guns go off, the rifles go off, the cannons go off. And what do you think is going to happen, right? There is simply no comparison. The Mamluks with the skimtars and horses and Napoleon with trained battalions and with cannons. More than 6,000 Mamluk soldiers decimated. And Napoleon's losses were in the hundred, at max maybe 200 French soldiers. More than 6,000 of the Mamluks completely gone. And this basically paved the way for the French to conquer the rest of Egypt. Quite literally, in the morning of that day, the Ottoman Mamluk leader, his name was Murad Bey, uh, the Ottoman Mamluk leader left his palace with his pageantry, with his horses, with his you know, army and whatnot, and that same evening, Napoleon slept in his bed. Quite that same day, this is like the symbolic takeover, the same evening, Napoleon was in the palace of Murad Bey, uh, surrounded by the, the, the luxury and whatnot of Murad Bey, and he was now, he had taken over, literally in a few hours, the, the Battle of the Pyramids. The next few months, uh, you know, were, uh, were set about, you know, consolidating his power over Egypt, and the West learned for the first time that it is super easy to invade, it is super easy easy to conquer, but it is impossible to actually rule. This was the historical precedent Napoleon set that nobody ever learned from up until our times with the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan and the invasions that will follow Allah knows when. Nobody learns from history. It is super easy to bring your gun, to bring your weapons, to bring your bombs and to conquer. But once you've conquered, you cannot rule over a population that does not want you. Nonetheless, it was at this stage with the conquest of Cairo that Napoleon began to court uh, the elites and the nobles and the ulama class. And he felt that if he could get the ulama class uh, to be his allies, that the rest of the people would follow. So he made a very special effort with the ulama class and especially with the Azhar uh, scholars. And he told them that he was their liberator and ally. And he told them that he was not a Christian and that he was an admirer of Islam. Now, the story of his conversion, quote unquote, right? Uh, yes, it is mentioned in one or two um, 
early sources, but not of the first generation of actual uh, eyewitness accounts. And technically speaking, it does appear that the conversion was a misunderstanding or an exaggeration of a later chronicler. He did, in fact, meet with the scholars of Al-Azhar. He did finance the Mawlid celebrations. By the way, interesting, was that bid'ah, not bid'ah, I'm not even going to go there, right? Uh, Bonaparte financing the Mawlid is <laughs> interesting here. The reason why he financed it was because uh, there was no money that year uh, because of the invasion. There was chaos and Napoleon said, don't, don't worry, I'll take care of the finances. So he sponsored the Mawlid. Uh, there was a massive Mawlid every single year. That year, Napoleon financed it. Uh, he gathered all of the ulama. And uh, one of the senior scholars of Al-Azhar uh, kept on, you know, pressuring him to convert and told him, if you convert, we will be behind you. If you convert, the lands of Islam can be yours. Basically, he was using the Islam card and saying, look, because they didn't like the Mamluks for many reasons. They didn't like, they wanted another leader. Every, I mean, it's human nature, by the way. I mean, politics is a dirty business. You're never going to appease the majority of people because it's just not possible to do that. Uh, but nonetheless, so a senior Sheikh of Al-Azhar was pressuring um, uh, Napoleon and in the course of that conversation, what appears to be the case is that Napoleon praised Islam immensely. And he praised the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he uh, expressed his admiration of Islam. That's really what happened. Doesn't look like he actually converted. Yes, there are some books that say that. And yes, you'll find it in Muslim websites and whatnot. But uh, I'm highly skeptical. And if you look at the original sources, they don't mention that. And in fact, we know because we have clear statements from his own generals, from the people that are on the other side, where they're saying that Napoleon was uh, basically using this as a ruse to court the ulama class, to praise Islam and whatnot. He was not a religious person per se. And uh, true. True, he admired certain aspects of Islam, but he never practiced Islam. He never prayed or did anything or did anything that a Muslim would do. And there's no indication from the original sources that he actually uttered the Shahada. So the notion of his conversion seems to be a, uh, a misunderstanding uh, by maybe a second generation, third generation chronicler where the extreme praise of Islam. Yes, he did praise Islam and he praised the Prophet and he praised the Quran. And in fact, um, the next week he wrote a letter to a sheikh that was preserved. He wrote a letter to a sheikh in another city and he said that I hope that I shall be able to unite all of the ulama of all of the countries and establish a uniform regime based upon the principles of the Quran, which alone are true and which alone can lead men to happiness, end quote. Now again, nobody seriously thinks that he actually believed these words, right? His own his own chronicler, his own generals and whatnot, they're writing very factually like, you know, Napoleon's making a fool out of these guys by by, by flirting with their religion and making them feel that, you know, the religion is the best. And in reality, uh, yeah, he does have some praise of the Quran and whatnot. He felt it to be more sensible than the Christian Bible. That doesn't mean he was a believer. And we should not embarrass ourselves by by reading in more than the facts, you know, tell us. We have to be very careful and, and academic here. So to cut a, a long and complicated story um, short, uh, the French attempted to rule over a completely alien land, foreign land to them. One whose culture they didn't understand, one whose language they had no, they didn't even speak fluent Arabic. It's just bizarre to imagine what, what's going on in 1798, you know, just a bunch of French people invading and then thinking they can rule over all of Egypt. But they tried. And for the next two years, they eked out an existence and they brought about lots of reforms and lots of changes. They introduced European customs, European notions. Uh, they introduced so many, you know, 
large and small things. Uh, the 150 scientists, by the way, uh, they were given carte blanche authority to study and research, and they opened a scientific institute or this institute for the, the study of science in, in, in Egypt here. And they did a lot of, of interesting uh, things. Uh, let me quote you, um, Jabarti, our guy Al Jabarti. Uh, let me quote you uh, some of Al Jabarti's descriptions of um, what he himself saw. He's an eyewitness here. So I quote you from Al Jabarti's book. Uh, the French installed in one of the houses a large library with several librarians who guarded the books and gave them to the readers who needed them. This library was open every day from two hours before midday. The readers gathered in the big hall besides the one where the books were kept. They sat in chairs ranged around the large tables and set to work. Even ordinary soldiers could come and work in the library. If a Muslim wished to come, he was not in any way prevented. On the contrary, he was welcomed in a friendly manner. The French were most pleased when a Muslim visitor appeared interested in the sciences. They immediately made themselves available to him, showing him all sorts of printed books with designs representing certain parts of the terrestrial globe, of animals and of plants. And then Jabarti says, I have had the occasion to visit this library several times and remain constantly astonished at the sight of all of these beautiful things. End quote. Al-Jabarti is impressed at a modern library. Wallahi, you cannot help but feel the reality of how things have changed. This is, the, this is one of the key points. Muslims, I'm not going to say invented the concept of the library, that's a bit of a stretch, but there's no question 500 years before this point in time, there was no massive library in all of Europe. When there were libraries in Fatimid, Egypt, when there were libraries in Baghdad, when there were libraries with half a million books in Andalus, right? Europeans had nothing like this. Now, Al-Jabarti is impressed. His mouth, his jaw is dropping because he sees a modern uh, library that is up and running and anybody can go and read books over there. Um, also, uh, Al-Jabarti writes uh, about, uh, about science, right? He talks about the astronomical instruments. He talks about the telescopes uh, that could uh, open and close and they could be fitted into little boxes. And he says they were used to observe the stars and determine their distance, their volume, their conjunctions, and their opposite. And oh, the irony. Again, Al-Jabarti is impressed at telescopes and looking at the stars. And again, this shows you how things have changed from where to where, right? It was the Muslims who mapped out, who charted all of the stars, named most of them. It was the Muslims who invented the precursors to the very telescopes that the French are now using. And Al-Jabarti is in complete awe, like what am I seeing over here? He writes about biology as well. Of course, he doesn't name the list discipline. And he says, and I quote, when an animal or fish unknown in France is discovered, they put it in a liquid which preserves it indefinitely without alteration. Again, you know, he's the, preser the preservation of samples. And of chemistry, he says that he visited one of their laboratories where one of the assistants took a flagon containing a certain liquid, poured a part of it into an empty glass, and lo and behold, it became a colored smoke. When the smoke disappeared, the liquid turned solid and remained a yellowish color. I touched this solid and I found it was hard as stone. The same experience was repeated with other liquids and they produced a blue stone and a third produced a red stone like a ruby. And he goes on and on. Once again, he is impressed at chemistry and he doesn't even remember or realize that the term for chemistry, alchemia, 
came from the Arabs. And again, from where to where, subhanAllah. You really see the disparate uh, worlds now of Europe and of the Muslim world. 1798, these two worlds are colliding together and you see the one has superseded the other by light years. This is the reality. Now, of course, a lot of interesting things happened because the, the French were in England, uh, England. the French were in uh, Egypt for two years, right? So a lot of very interesting things um, um, happen over here. Uh, small anecdotes are mentioned in so many different um, books. Uh, Al-Jabarti, for example, mentions that the French introduced the concept of restaurants, right? And uh, he was bemused at the a la carte menu system where uh, you have the, 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 the option of choosing a particular dish for a particular price. Because again, back in the day, uh, the cook cooked whatever he wanted to cook, one meal, and everybody ate the same meal and you paid, you know, or you, you bartered, you negotiated. It's a very different system, you know. So the notion of having a set menu, right, and then you choose, and then it's, a, it's, it's something he's, um, uh, he's, he's intrigued by. Um, one of the most uh, predictable and yet awkward realities was the interaction between uh, French men and the ladies of Cairo. That's a very sordid chapter, which again, much can be said, but uh, it's not the time to get into there. Uh, but do realize that when you're going to have 20,000 soldiers and you have people uh, in a very poor situation, starving literally, do realize that you're going to get the inevitable whenever any invading army comes, whenever you have lots of men uh, and then you have a population that's impoverished, uh, you're, going to, you're going to get a lot of you know ladies of the night. And that business flourished in Cairo because of the, uh, the, 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 the soldiers. And lots of lurid and sad uh, details of young ladies offering themselves for money, literally teenagers or younger. I mean, this is in their French chronicles and you know, they're, they're starving and then they're offering themselves and they became well-known places. As you can understand, this is what happens anytime an invading force um, comes. Uh, as well, the elite of the French those who could afford it, very soon picked up the habit of purchasing slaves and concubines, which was against all notions of the Enlightenment. In fact, it was illegal in France to do so. Technically, it was not allowed for them as French citizens to purchase slaves, much less concubines or whatnot. But hey, it's Egypt. Who's going to care? Who's going to do anything? And this shows you the clear, you know, double standards, if you like, right? And so uh, the French would be very, the French noblemen, because again, it's money, it requires money, not the, the soldiers but those who could afford to they would regularly go to the slave markets they would purchase young boys for their errands and they would purchase girls for you know what and you also had a very interesting phenomenon of uh, French soldiers and French elite um, wanting to marry you know, certain noble ladies of the Egyptian uh, elite for doing so for whatever reason, either because they're lonely or because they're going to establish ties or contact or because, you know, human beings are human beings and romances are going to occur. And many of these ladies' families, they demanded that French convert to uh, Islam. And perhaps the most famous was uh, General Menou, M-E-N-O-U-E, -E, General Menou. And General Menou was the person who was in charge. Napoleon left, as we're going to come to. General Menou took charge of the entire operation of the French being in, uh, in, uh, in Egypt. And he fell in love with a young teenager by the name of Zubaydah al-Bawwab. 
and uh, he was so enamored with her when her family said that he must uh, convert he actually converted to Islam and he took on the name Abdullah and uh, he married Zubaydah and when he returned to France he brought Zubaydah with him and uh, he had a child with Zubaydah whom he, uh, he named Suleiman. And uh, I mean, as far as I know, they didn't really practice Islam many generations afterwards. Uh, but this uh, particular general, Minou, is actually famous. And his name is inscribed to this day in the famous, you know, Arc de Triomphe, the famous Arc uh, of, of, of Paris. Everybody who's been there has seen it, right? His name is inscribed over there. Uh, and he actually converted to uh, Islam. Uh, Al-Jabarti also remarks with a lot of sadness that a lot of the Muslim ladies who associated with the French, uh, they began to dress like the French ladies. They discarded their veil and they started walking around, you know, displaying, uh, as Al-Jabarti says, their zina uh, to, to everybody. This caused a lot of anger in society as well. And again, realize that anytime you have lots of troops in a particular area, uh, you're going to get um, uh, the, the night ladies. You get my point. You're going to get rape, a'udhu billah. Uh, you're going to get uh, uh, not just that prostitution. You're also going to get what is it, gambling. Oh, yes, of course. Um, alcohol right <laughs> how can you have a western army invading without alcohol and so alcohol became uh, uh, widely available and of course it's going to cause resentment and anger the morality is changing and, and people are, are you know things are happening that are uh, 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 riling up the the population and um in 1798 finally sultan salim the third was roused into action and he ordered uh, a firman, he issued a firman, a royal decree, in which he declared jihad against Napoleon. And a part of that firman read about the French, and I quote, They mock all religions. They reject belief in another life, as well as, as its punishment and reward. They do not believe in the resurrection of the body, nor in the last day. And they think that there is a blind chance that presides over life and death that they owe their existence to pure matter and that after this life their body returns to this earth i.e. they're secularists, they're atheists, they're agnostics they don't believe in a hereafter and God and whatnot so the farman of the Ottoman uh, ruler Salim III is describing atheism and agnosticism uh, because Muslims have never heard of this right nobody, no civilization is secular until the French come along and they, 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 they are basically propagating these, uh, these views the farman also reads and I quote their aim is to spread disunity amongst the rulers, trouble amongst the emperors, and incite the subjects to revolt. And then listen to this. The French think that men, being born equal, must be equally free, that all distinction between men is unjust, and that each ought to be the master of his own opinion and of his own manner of living. They have the impudence to say, we are brothers and friends, the same interests unite us, and we have the same religious opinions, end quote. Now, it's very profound and interesting that modern notions of liberty were so alien to uh, uh, the peoples of Istanbul and other lands that all that the Farman had to do was to describe European liberalism and say, look at how ridiculous that is. Now, I'm not commenting on pro or con, I'm simply saying that the concepts of the Enlightenment were so foreign to the minds of uh, uh, the populations of that time that all Sultan Salim III had to do was describe 
these are who the French are. How can you be uh, like this? Very interesting. That's all I'm going to remark over here, right? Now, obviously, with the decree of Sultan Salim III of Jihad, this now presented a crisis to the ulama and the religious clergy and the basically the loyalists uh, in Cairo. Now, what are they going to do now? Now the Khalifa has declared jihad. And Sunni theology says you have to obey the Khalifa, especially when he calls for jihad. And so Sultan Salim III's Ferman actually provoked uh, one of the most famous attempts to overthrow Napoleon. And a, a jihad was declared by thousands of local Cairo residents and it was led by a group of ulama from Al-Azhar University and the senior clerics of Al-Azhar were involved and many of the students of Al-Azhar were involved and in October of 1798 thousands upon thousands of Al-Azhar students and local Cairo residents they banded together and they declared jihad against Napoleon and they armed themselves with makeshift weapons with household items you know literally sometimes even pots and pans well not pots and pans you can get my point things in the household right and there was a respected sheikh of Al-Azhar who was their main uh, leader and all of the uh, deputies uh, and, and all of the, the military commanders were basically most of them were from uh, uh, Al-Azhar and so this became the Al-Azhar uh, resistance and interestingly enough uh, Al-Azhar's campus and its famous masjid became the base of the resistance. Now, unfortunately, you know, as with most such rebellions, there's a lot of good spirit, but not a lot of planning. There was no one strong unified leader, no concrete plan of action, uh, no thinking through two or three steps. And in reality, this is standard for all such movements, you know, good or bad. Just look at the mutiny of India, which definitely deserves a library chat, the mutiny of India. Just look at the mutiny of India. Look at any other without getting specific. Think of any other attack or whatnot. Nobody thinks two steps ahead. Nobody's thinking things through. And so the same goes over here, that thousands of people come together, but unfortunately, they had a mob mentality. They themselves wreaked a lot of havoc, killing innocent people, uh, burning down people's residences, whatnot, that were not really guilty. Unfortunately, sometimes even, you know, women issue comes, because again, we have a bunch of men doing things. I mean, obviously, there's no excuse, but things are going to happen. So obviously, you know, along that, you're going to get the very population you're trying to protect also gets frustrated at you. It lasted less than a week. Napoleon himself led the charge against the seminary students and their teachers. Uh, and of course, eventually, you know, um, uh, Napoleon brought in the troops and the cannons. The French literally, literally dragged in the cannons in the narrow streets of Cairo and aimed it at Al-Azhar University. Wallahi, it's surreal. It is surreal. Al-Azhar University becomes the bastion of resistance pause here footnote what happened to al-azhar with uh, with uh, uh, anyway let's let's not go there there were many good uh, ulama there are many good ulama as well but things have changed very clearly and wallahu al-musta'an uh, in any case the cannons were pointed the troops were sent in and a massacre ensued over 3000 uh, ulama and students and locals were massacred uh, buildings collapsed the complete mayhem uh, of the uh, insurrection hundreds were taken prisoner of war and many hundreds were executed and their heads put on stakes because 
that's what the, the, the that's what's going to happen when you have a rebellion al jabarti who was an eyewitness al jabarti remarks sadly that the french soldiers entered the masjid with their horses they urinated inside the masjid to desecrate it they tore up copies of the quran they they anybody who was because the mosque became the, the 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 center of the rebellion right so anybody whom they found in the mosque they beat and they stripped naked so that he had to be humiliated uh, and whatnot and that's if they didn't capture and kill him because all of the senior leaders or many of them were not not all many of them were executed uh, and uh, according to al-Jabarti many ancient relics and ancient books were destroyed it is said that some of these books ended up in Europe and Allah knows best it is said but in any case uh, the rest of the sheikhs of al-Azhar were forced to surrender and the senior most um, uh, leaders were executed and the second tier Napoleon had them repent, gave them a forced oath of allegiance or forced them to give the oath of allegiance. Uh, and he didn't want to alienate the rest of the population. He also spared Al-Azhar University because there was talks of demolishing. There was talks of, of literally leveling it to the ground by the cannons. But uh, he felt that that would not be a wise thing uh, to do. Interestingly, Al-Jabarti mentions there were three factions of ulama. You had uh, the first faction who uh, were leading the charge, they were waging jihad against uh, Napoleon, and of course, you know, all of them either were killed uh, or um, had to be forced to, to sign and whatnot. Uh, Al-Jabarti says there was a second group who were quietists. They didn't take sides, they didn't support Napoleon, but they also didn't support the insurrection thinking that it would fail. And so they simply did not participate. And then he said there was a small third group that um, uh, supported Napoleon and allied themselves with Napoleon and their leader, of course, we already mentioned his name at the beginning, was Sayyid Khalil uh, Bakri. This was the leader. He was a sheikh of Al-Azhar and he was Napoleon's main liaison, main right-hand man when it came to dealing with Muslim affairs. Um, and interestingly enough, even the Christian chronicler of the time, he documents that this Sheikh al-Bakri, he was highly respected by the Napoleon, by Napoleon and the French, but he was despised by the Muslims because his loyalties were with the French and not with his co-religionists. Even a Christian chronicler points out that this Sheikh was despised by the other Muslims because he was viewed as a, uh, a traitor. In any case, I'm going to finish off the next year and a half in two minutes that... Um, in the next year, a number of key battles were fought in the Sinai Peninsula and in Syria. Uh, the Ottomans really did try hard and perhaps they were close to succeeding. But in the end, Napoleon managed to uh, delay uh, the, the main assault and was, if not victorious, at least repelled the attacks of the Ottomans. And he returned to Cairo with great fanfare. A pompous ceremony was held in July of 1799. So we're fast forwarding a full year. Uh, and uh, Napoleon came back a victor. However, there were too many problems happening. Low troop morale, uh, lots of, of, of troops dying from diseases, the plague, there was a huge um, outburst of plague during this time frame. Uh, the locals as well were constantly killing the soldiers' attrition. Uh, there are stories of, of things falling from the sky from uh, houses and whatnot and killing the soldiers uh, anonymously. Uh, it is even said women were used to lure men uh, to soldiers and then kill them and leave them in the streets. There. So there was a, a, a very thriving underground resistance going on for this entire uh, duration. And the main point is that the troop morale was going lower and lower and lower. And therefore, literally, literally, in August of 1799, Napoleon decided to simply abandon his cause himself and leave somebody in charge without telling his troops. The troops woke up and they heard the news that Napoleon had left. 
And so Napoleon returned quietly to France and he announced he had been victorious and the people in France believed him that we have a successful colony in Egypt. And so obviously this jettisoned his own career. And of course, the rest is history in Napoleon's trajectory. That's a whole different uh, category. He never came back to Egypt after that from August 1799. And uh, Napoleon left in charge his right-hand man. Within a few months, his right-hand man was assassinated in the streets. Uh, another person, the one I told you about, Manu, he came in charge and he converted to Islam, uh, at least outwardly and whatnot. Uh, but uh, it was obvious that this was a, a lost cause. And the, 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 the camel, uh, the straw that brought the camel's back was actually the introduction of the British. The British got tired of this French play going on in Egypt and the British sent their naval force and they decimated completely or almost completely the French naval forces. And so for the rest of the 1800s, throughout the turn of the century, the French and the British are having a proxy war in Egypt and eventually the French realized they're simply not going to win and so in 1801 the French forces negotiate a treaty of surrender with the British not with the Egyptians with the British and then they slink away so from 1798 to 1801 1798 to 1801 is the French expedition uh, to Egypt Napoleon is there for less than a little bit less than half of that time frame Jayid okay what are some of the main lessons that we learn from this really interesting uh, episode? Well, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt was the first of many dozens of invasions. And the famous Edward Said, uh, one of the most the greatest minds of the last, uh, 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 the last generation, Edward Said remarks that Napoleon's invasion is the original sin in the nexus of Western quest for hegemonic power and knowledge. What uh, Napoleon did was that he ushered in the era of colonization. He demonstrated Europe's insatiable appetite to control the world. He showed that Europe had this, this, this arrogance, the sheer assumed arrogance that it is divinely ordained to rule the rest of the world and that it's qualified to do so and that it will succeed when it actually does so. And of course, all of these presumptions are uh, false. Uh, another interesting point is that, of course, this invasion launched Napoleon's career. Uh, even though the occupation was in many ways a, a, a failure, right? Yet still, uh, Napoleon came back to France and he was lauded, returned to France, he was lauded as a victor. Uh, and this is, of course, a subtle form of racism. It's like you hate the other so much that any invasion is automatically considered to be uh, a, a victory. One of the things as well that um, uh, was sparked was uh, knowledge was impacted. The French government and this Institute of Scientific Development that was founded by Napoleon, it commissioned a series of publications describing Egypt in a lot of detail. These books are still around and these are amazing books written by, again, these are scientists and thinkers and, 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 and historians and you find these books, you still have these books in French libraries and I think a few of them are in uh, American libraries as well. These massive books that are, uh, that are talking about uh, Egypt and the people of Egypt, diagrams, very beautiful diagrams Diagrams, the first pictures ever, not, not photography, but, you know, diagrams carefully carved of uh, what they discovered. The Rosetta Stone is discovered, by the way. The Rosetta Stone, hieroglyphics and translating hieroglyphics is discovered by this team of scientists. And 
uh, a lot of interest is generated. Egyptology is basically formed by these group of scientists, right? The study of Egypt. Also, uh, Orientalism, the study of Islam, uh, I'm not going to say it was invented by them, but it, it reaches a new level with these thinkers and they're writing about Islam and they're talking about uh, the Muslim world. Another thing that, that this invasion demonstrated, as we mentioned already, is the disparity of technologies, is the wide gulf of knowledge, of all types of knowledge between the East and the West, of warfare and of the sciences. And of anything, really, the the West really has in, by the seven by the seventeen nineties, it's very clear which of the two civilizations is superior in terms of uh, technological achievements and in terms of scientific uh, developments. And again, there's no better demonstration of this than the actual battles taking place. On the one side, you have skimtars and swords and ancient muskets, and on the other side, superior cannons and weaponry and training. There is simply no comparison. Also, one of the most important Important, uh, uh, one of the most important points of this invasion is the printing press. And I've already mentioned the ironies of its introduction. And by the way, because of this, it's no surprise that Egypt in particular became the center of Muslim printing and of Arab printing, and especially in the Bulaq region where the Bulaq printing press became the first or the most famous of the earliest uh, printing uh, presses. Uh, also, one of the things that we see in this invasion is the Muslim land becomes a proxy for greater superpowers to battle it out. It is so ironic that this would not be the last time that two superpowers are fighting in Muslim lands using Muslim resources and killing Muslims as a part of their battles. The French and the British had it out in Egypt. And 200 years later, America and Russia would have it out in Afghanistan and in so many other places. You know, superpowers don't get involved in uh, other countries out of uh, a sense of, of, of goodness. No, you know, they want their share of the pie. And the British got involved because they hated the French. But as soon as the French left, the British now had direct control over Egyptian authorities. And in, in a few decades after this, the British literally ruled over Egypt until the 1950s and the Suez Canal incident. You can read your history um, over there. One of the uh, uh, repercussions of this invasion as well was that Napoleon's invasion of, of Egypt, ironically, actually launched Egypt from becoming one of the most backward and socioeconomic, um, socioeconomically deprived lands of the Muslim world to, relatively speaking, becoming one of the intellectual and cultural capitals of the Arab and Muslim world, the center of attention, so much so that a past U.S. president intentionally chose Cairo to make an address when he wanted to show that he's building bridges with the Muslim uh, world. The effects of this invasion directly catapulted Egypt to its current status of being a center of Arab and Islamic civilization. And again, this all happened as a result of Napoleon's invasion. Why? And again, that's a whole different history, but that is because the Ottomans sent a brilliant Albanian general by the name of Muhammad Ali Basha, uh, who initially was sent to kick the French out, but uh, he, the French already left anyway. He did help a little bit in this regard. But when uh, Muhammad Ali Basha came to Egypt, he decided to take charge of his own. And he sees control of Egypt from the Mamluks and he famously invited all of the Mamluks to a massive feast in his own palace over 500 Mamluks were killed in that palace in that infamous dinner that he held and you can go and visit the actual palace and the actual streets uh, it's called the street of blood because it was flowing with all the Mamluk blood uh, Muhammad Ali Basha literally wiped out the Mamluk dynasty in one dinner and 
then he became, he declared himself the ruler of uh, Egypt, and he even had ambitions to become the Sultan or the, the Khalifa of the Muslim world. But he began a series of modernizations, sending people to study in France because of Napoleon. Uh, and uh, some of the great minds like At-Tahtawi, At-Tahtawi and others, the very first sheikh and alim to go and study uh, abroad and, and bring back ideas and whatnot. Uh, all of this is coming uh, because of Muhammad Ali Basha and understanding that the French are superior uh, to, the, to the Arab world in technological uh, matters. And of course, Muhammad Ali Basha established the dynasty that lasted in Egypt all the way up until King Farouk and his overthrow. King Farouk is a direct descendant of Muhammad Ali Basha and King Farouk is uh, overthrown in 1952 by Gamal Abdel Nasser. And of course, Egypt has been under military dictatorship ever since, except for that brief interlude after the Arab Spring. Another point of uh, interest for us as well is the introduction of ideas that were alien to Arab and Muslim minds, right? Jabarti is mocking the introduction of, of a la carte menus, but in reality, a la carte menus didn't radically change the structure of the Middle East. What did change the structure of the Middle East is Western concepts of liberty, Western concepts of rights, Western concepts of nation states. And again, I'm not commenting good or bad. I'm simply saying that is exactly what happened. Uh, these notions are now being introduced for the very first time. And of course, we have the change of the morality, the change of uh, the vices now being publicly done and the hijab and whatnot. All of this is now changing for the very first time these types of changes are happening at a societal uh, level. Another very interesting point for me in this particular um, uh, incident is to see the realities of ulama vis-a-vis -vis tyranny. And you always have a spectrum. You always do. It's never nothing new. And uh, Jabarti categorizes three. I have actually done uh, in a Facebook post last year. I, I did a more detailed, like I did a five type uh, topography. But in reality, it's the same concept, right? You have those that are uh, opposed vehemently, so much so they're willing to fight. And these were the people who declared jihad on on uh, Napoleon. And then you have the middle category who were quietists who decided they don't want to get involved and they're just going to go about their stuff. And then you had the people who tried to validate uh, Napoleon. And it's really interesting that that category is universally uh, despised. Me personally, I excuse all the rest of the categories and I say that all of them, they, you know, they, 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 it's not really, I don't see a problem. Each one has to decide where they want to go. Uh, and it's, you know, there, there were ulama who decided to work with Napoleon, but not for Napoleon. Big difference. There were senior ulama of Al-Azhar. They decided, you know what, <laughs> there's nothing we can do. We don't want to get killed, all of us here. So we'll work with him, but not for him. And the small group, and uh, Sheikh Bakri was the main uh, one of them, he decided that he's going to work for Napoleon to legitimize Napoleon and to rat out his own people and he lost um, the respect of all people and that's something that we find to this day all tyrannical regimes, we have their equivalents to this day of their rubber stamping ulama and they lost all of their um, their, their izzah. And the main uh, point here for us and with this I conclude inshallah ta'ala, most importantly the French invasion it whetted European greed 
and it incentivized other superpowers attempting to leapfrog each other to see who could eat the largest share of the prize. It ushered in the era of colonization, Muslim lands being colonized, and uh, Britain, of course, was the most nefarious with India and with strips of the Arabian Peninsula, and then with Egypt, and then with Sudan in the late 1800s. France then invaded Algeria in 1830s, and then Morocco. The Dutch and then the Portuguese were competing with Malaysia and the Far East. Libya was taken as a toy by the Italians, you know, uh, uh, Umar al-Mukhtar and others, you know. And so less than a hundred years after Napoleon declared his Islam, or I should say his support of Muslims, because that's really what it was, less than a hundred years after Napoleon spoke with the ulama of al-Azhar, less than a hundred years after that, the bulk of the Muslim world was under direct colonial rule. And those that were not were under proxy rule. There was direct contact. And then, of course, World War I, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That's a deep pun over there because the camel here represents the Ottoman Empire, the Muslim world. The straw that broke the camel's back is World War I. The sick man of Europe's janazah was prayed uh, in 1922, if you like, metaphorically. And the Muslim world was then divided up into all of the nation states via the Sykes-Picot Agreement, barely a century and a decade after Napoleon and France, subhanAllah, right? And all of this was predicted by our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in a hadith in Muslim Muhammad when he said, It is only a matter of time before the other nations are going to be inviting one another to come and feast at your table, meaning your ummah, just like hungry people are called to eat at a common plate of food. The Prophet predicted this, that is going to happen. And the Sahaba said, are we going to be very few in number, Ya Rasulullah? And he said, no, but you're going to be like, you know, the foam of the ocean, the flotsam and jetsam of the ocean, lots of things in the ocean, but, you know, nothing of benefit over here. And that is because you won't have that iman. You're going to, you know, not be looking forward to meeting Allah Azza wa Jal. You're going to have weak uh, faith. You're not looking, preparing for death. This hadith predicts uh, quite literally uh, the colonization of the Muslim lands. And in our case, for this particular incident, Napoleon's invasion is a watershed moment in our history, and it is the one single event that ushers in the modern era. It thrusts us directly, without even us wanting to do so, it thrusts us into modernity. And with Napoleon's invasion, the modern era of the Muslim world begins. It is something that this incident is something that every single serious researcher and student of knowledge should study and be aware of. And with that, inshallah ta'ala, we finish today's chat and I'll continue whenever the next time arises. And I hope inshallah we get electricity back full time. Full time. يا من أجبت دعاء نوح فانتصر وحملته في فلكك المشحون يا من أحال النار حول خليله روحا وريحانا بقولك كون